Well, October 2011 was the first time that Mariana and I ever held hands. Uh, she's not here this morning. She texted me earlier. Maybe she'll be here for the lunch. Isla hasn't been feeling too great uh, today, but she's um, feeling better. So she's, she's seeing if she can make it for lunch. Anyways, um, she uh, we had really just started formally dating, you know, uh, whatever that's called in, in Bible college. And uh, we had decided to have our big first big date. We were going to go somewhere do something big, and that was to the NC State Fair. And uh, it was an amazing night. Uh, the weather was perfect. We got those ribbon fry things. Love was in the air. We rode the Ferris wheel, took a picture at the top of the Ferris wheel. It was great. Nothing could go wrong until it was time to leave and to find where we had parked. We went out of a different exit than the one that we came in, and we had a choice to make. Do we go right, or do we go left? I suggested we go left. She suggested we go right. We went with uh, her cousin and another friend who was there with us. They sided with me, so we went left. And already our love was being put to the test. That night, we walked around the entire perimeter of the NC State Park looking for our car. She bit her tongue the entire time, knowing that we could have made it to our vehicle in less than 10 minutes if we had gone right instead of left. So we walked through the crowded streets of Raleigh, through many dark parking lots full of creeps and carnies, for no good reason. But it was during this walk that we held hands for the first time, and it was awesome. But I was a bad leader that night. I led us into danger for no reason, and this is why it's critical for our society to elect good leaders. Nations need good presidents. States need good governors. Towns need good mayors. Businesses need good bosses. Churches need good pastors. Children need good parents. Without good leadership, we will find ourselves walking into danger for no good reason. And we, as the people of God, have the spirit of Jesus for our leader, as was revealed in the previous passage. He's a very good leader. He never leads us astray. He will sometimes lead us into dangers, toils, and snares. But he never does it for no good reason. Our text today brings this missionary group into a new town full of unknowns, Macedonia. How will they respond to the gospel? Is it safe there? Will God save almost the whole town like he did back in Antioch and everybody's going to show up on the Sabbath and the Gentiles will be saved? I mean, it's the Holy Spirit who led them there. He already said no to the two other places, so surely something awesome is going to happen in Macedonia. The Lord does indeed to do some marvelous work. But it's not a story that I think any of us would have written. The Spirit leads them on a journey to meet some women on the outside of town, and then they're followed around by a possessed slave girl, and then they are arrested, beaten, humiliated, and fastened in stocks but it's not for nothing. God, by His grace, is going to sovereignly use this event to save two unlikely Gentiles who would be the first members of the church at Philippi. It's not the story we would write, but it is where the Holy Spirit led. And therein lies the joy in knowing our leader is good and wise, no matter how strange or odd the journey seems. 
He knows what he's doing. We learn of God's sovereignty here in three domains, and I believe if we understand these domains more and more, we'll be better prepared to follow him when the journey seems all too strange. Those are sovereign over salvation, sovereign over spirits, and sovereign over persecution. Sovereign over salvation, sovereign over spirits, sovereign over persecution. First is sovereign over salvation, starting in verse 11. Our text picks up with this new enthusiasm for their assignment. They didn't know where they were going to go, so they just kind of camped in Troas until they had some confirmation. The Lord gave a vision in the middle of the night to Paul, saying that there's this dude in Macedonia waving, saying, Help! Come here! Come help! Right? And so he got up the next morning and told the others and said, Hey, I had this dream last night. I think maybe the Lord's calling us to go to Macedonia. What do you guys think? And they were like, Yes! Let's go to Macedonia. That must be it. So they set sail, verse 11 says, and made a direct voyage. They didn't sleep on it. They didn't wait till the following Monday. They didn't do a little more sightseeing in Troas first. There was a renewed excitement and zeal for the Great Commission because God told them where and what to do. Um, their confirmation was so solid that they immediately boarded the next ship headed for Macedonia. And this wasn't a simple expedition. I think there's a map that I have here in the next slide. You know, look at all the places they passed when they were in the Asia area from Lystra and Derby. They tried to go to Bithynia, tried to go to Asia. The Lord said, no, no, no. They landed in Troas, sort of camped the night there, and then had to take a boat all the way over to Macedonia. And over across the salt water is a whole different world really was a whole different world. This was not an easy expedition. This was not one that was common sense. But God said, go to Macedonia. As far as they were concerned, as long as God said it, it didn't matter where they were going. God could say, go to the moon. And they say, well, God told us, let's go to the moon. And this happened to be Macedonia. Right off the bat, I think there's some application for us that the Lord may have. And that's when he says, go, go. Don't take the long way there. Don't sit on it forever. How many stories have you heard about pastors who fought some kind of calling to ministry for years and years and years before they finally gave in? I had a short stint of that, and it had to be short because I was basically a child when I became a pastor. Uh, but Mariana and I say all the time that we gave away our 20s for the ministry. We didn't really have 20s. Uh, I just turned 30. Yeah? Just turned 30, uh, and while I don't say this easily, I say it sincerely, that I would do it all over again. I would give away my 20s again to you. Because God was the one who brought us here, and putting off God's plan for 10 more years would have been foolish and faithless. Maybe you're not wrestling with a call to ministry, but just to embrace what the Spirit is leading you to do. The Lord has brought that thing to your mind, you have confirmation from other wise friends, you've sought good counsel, they have affirmed this thing, and you have a resolve in your soul that this is what God would have you do. Don't wait. Set sail. Make a direct voyage to that thing. It may involve getting on a ship and changing everything you're doing to do something really, really hard, but it is God who calls you and he has good purposes for what he calls you to do. And to know that God himself calls you is a joy greater than all the trials you could possibly face along the way. 
So my encouragement to you is to go all in now. I've met way too many folks who wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. I've talked to people on their deathbeds who are ready to finally give in to Jesus. Don't be that person. Go all in now. From Samothrace, Neapolis, finally to Philippi, they made it to Macedonia. The text says in verse 12 that Philippi was a leading city in Macedonia. Probably means it was large and influential. Uh, it was a Roman colony. And this um, several miles of water, right, separating these two uh, regions were like different worlds. Lystra and Derby were certainly pagan areas, but they were far more rural. And they still had a context for Jewish civilization and the Jewish people. Here in Philippi, there are no Jews. They, they, don't, they don't live in Philippi. This is an extension of Rome. They worship Roman gods here. Due to a major transportation route, the culture was also very Roman. It was a Roman world. They had a Roman-style theater coliseum. They had pagan temples. They had a speaker's platform for their great and lofty philosophical debates. And in comes Paul of Tarsus asking for the nearest synagogue. He ain't going to find one. They remained there for some days, and there was no synagogue to be found. Instead, verse 13, they have to employ a new strategy instead of going to the synagogue and causing a scene. On the Sabbath day, it says, they went outside the city to a riverside where there was some kind of prayer gathering. They had heard about a religious meeting, some kind of prayer group that was taking place, um, and this was outside the gates, so maybe they could be a part of this and not get in too much trouble with the authorities or cause a big stir. I don't know. Whatever it was, they thought they could have influence here rather than just going to the nearest pagan temple. So they had this little prayer group, and in verse 13, they realized it's actually a ladies' Bible study. There are women there meeting outside the gate praying. Not really Paul's style. He wants to shake things up and preach to all the people in a big gathering. Here is this small, quaint women's prayer group. But they don't leave. Paul stays. He sat down, and he spoke to the women who had come together. One of those women was named Lydia. She came from Thyatira in Asia, so she was probably Asian. She was a seller of purple stuff, and uh, that might mean that she had some wealth. Uh, it might mean that she relocated here for business. Uh, it's not clear, but she, you know, purple business was booming, so she sold purple stuff. She was not a Christian, but the text does say that she was a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. Now, what I believe is going on here wasn't common, but it certainly wasn't a new idea. There were Gentiles in other parts of the world that did worship the Jewish God, Yahweh, right? We read Leviticus that talks about sojourners and how to treat them in your camp. Uh, let, them, let them have the grapes off the ground, right? Uh, th this was a common thing, that there were Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh, and she was one of those. Um, there were Gentiles who'd heard about the Jewish God and all the prophecies written down. And in the Christmas story, this is why we have those wise, three wise guys, right? There were more than three of them, but they, they came, um, ethnic people, not non-Jews, to see if this thing was true, to see what the prophecies were all about, and to see this newborn king that had been um, given. This was a woman who had prayed to Yahweh and worshipped him. Perhaps she was even waiting for a Messiah king who would come to take away sins like she had heard about. 
Well, Paul has some news for this Lydia. He doesn't stand up and preach from Habakkuk chapter 1. What he does, it seems, is they all just sit down together and kind of talk. We don't know what Paul was saying. But whatever he said, she heard it. And she heard it, heard it. She heard it in her heart. Verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And here we begin to see why God brought them all this way. He had a plan to open up the heart of this Gentile worshiper and to save her. The text doesn't tell us again what Paul said, but we could probably fill in the blanks. Go back to chapter 13. He started with Abraham and he ended with Jesus, right? He whom God raised did not see corruption. The son of David has come, paid the penalty for our sins, and there is forgiveness in no other name but the name of Jesus. And this is the name that we have come to proclaim. And those words traveled through Lydia's brain, and somewhere in between her brain and her heart, the Lord did an interpretive measure to turn that logical, factual data about Jesus' death and resurrection into faith. She woke up. Something changed. Faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This non-Jewish worshiper of Yahweh was born again and knew in that moment that Yahweh heard every single prayer and has sent these men to tell her the gospel. Just like Ananias back in chapter 10 when Peter visited. A couple things here. First of all, God saves women. Amen? Is that too simple an application? God saves women. Praise God, he saves women. The Lord will send missionaries across the world to save one woman. Women have souls, and those souls need saving. They are not lesser creations. They bear the image of God. God loves to open their hearts. Praise God for all the women that he has saved in this church. And alongside that, God gives faithful women as gifts to his church. Lydia was the first disciple in Macedonia. The Lord didn't open the heart of some great Roman ruler, you know, or a Pharisee like Paul who had all this influence and power and, you know, natural leadership. Here was just this woman who sold purple stuff. And her home would become the first meeting place for the church in Philippi. Over all Macedonia, the first church would be in her home. Everyone's looking for a few good men. But God saves and employs women in the work of ministry. And they do big and lasting work that changes the kingdom of God in a good way. And secondly, no one is saved, men or women, unless the Lord opens the heart. It is not enough to believe simple facts about Jesus' death and resurrection. The heart must be opened so that the transformative seed of the gospel can be permanently and deeply rooted in the heart so that that Depraved heart can be changed and made new. Stony heart broken, the heart of flesh put in place. This is what happened to Lydia. Many, of course, right now, I'm sure you've heard, and I mentioned it last week, are talking about the spark of revival that's happening across the southeast that began at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. A week later, it appears now that multiple college campuses are having similar experiences. 
they have not stopped worshiping. Uh, many young people are coming together to pray, to worship, to hear the Bible, to repent. Many of us pray for revivals like this to happen, and this very well could be the Lord's kindness to wake up the church and uh, give us a reminder of our priestly calling and give us new pastors and missionaries and a wonderful season of growth and fruit. Many of us also have pre-planned fall and spring revival services in which we get uh, a contracted preacher to come in and we get all the things in the right, you know, all, all the puzzle pieces in the right place and we expect a move of the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, the only one making plans is the Holy Spirit. He is the one that opens hearts and unless the heart is opened, it's dead. He opens hearts. He sends missionaries. He saves sinners. And aside from his sovereign will, every human being who ever lived would be in hell. It's up to God and God alone. And God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Has God opened your heart? A couple of you nodding, that's good. I believe God has planned nothing by chance. If you're here today, it's because God has brought you here. And in his divine will and foreknowledge and authority, he decreed that you would be in this place at this time and would hear the gospel that I am preaching. You are a sinner, and all sin is worthy of death before our Maker. Your sin separates you from him, and it will separate you from him forever unless there is a substitute provided for your sin. Someone pure and blameless and holy has to die in your place in order to satisfy the wrath of God. And of course, no one else on this earth is sinless. And if there was such a person, not a good chance they're going to take that punishment for you. One would scarcely die for an unrighteous person. But God sent His Son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, sinless, to pay the penalty for your sin, to be your substitute on the cross. He died a horrid death, enduring the full weight of God's wrath that we deserved, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and then three days later, the stone in front of that tomb was rolled away. That's because he rose from the dead and defeated sin and death and hell once and for all. He was victorious in his mission, and he is now reigning as Lord over all, sending his spirit to open up thousands upon thousands of, of men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation, giving them the gift of faith that they might believe on him and not perish in their sins. Perhaps the Lord is opening your heart right this very moment. Hear me. Be not distracted about what time it is, the food next door, who's sitting beside you, why you came here, or any of that, Jesus saves, and if he's opening your heart right now, pay attention to these words, as Lydia did, and be saved. Pay attention to these words. Be saved.
This is what happened to Lydia. She was baptized along with her whole family. She invited the missionaries to come in and stay with them. They couldn't say no. And there's a lot more to say about baptism and how we receive people into the church. And we're going to hold off till next week on the Philippian jailer. And we'll cover a few of those good things. But for now, we'll hang tight and uh, we'll see this big main point is that God is sovereign in salvation. He saves people. He does it in his time and in his methods. We should be eager to follow the Spirit's direction, knowing that he and he alone has the power to save. We also follow the Spirit among the darkest of evils that roam this earth. He is sovereign over spirits. Verse 16, Paul and the others decided to stay with Lydia for a while, and this prayer gathering became a custom on the Sabbath. So in verse 16, they were going back to this prayer meeting, and they were interrupted by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She was a slave. She had an evil spirit within her, some kind of demon, which allowed her to predict future events of some kind. Uh, her owners were using this poor girl's haunted soul to make money. She brought them much gain by fortune-telling. Interestingly, the Greek word for divination here is python, which is actually a pronoun, uh, I believe, referring to a mythical Greek serpent that would have been well known in those days in those parts of the world. It was probably this god that the locals attributed her source of foretelling to. But then the Greek word for fortune-telling is derived from the word maniomai, it's where we get our word for Maniac, fortune-telling. The Jews actually called Jesus a maniomai in John chapter 10 after the Good Shepherd passage. They say, he's out of his mind. And then they, some others respond, though, and they say, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? But the variation of the fortune-telling word here is used nowhere else in Scripture. It's not that this slave girl was just foaming at the mouth and raging in fury like some of the other possessed folks we see in the New Testament. In other ancient texts, this word is used to describe a false prophet, maniomai. They utter all kinds of falsehoods under the pretense of foretelling. In other words, though she had some success, she was a liar. She was a deceiver, as the father of all lies is also a deceiver. Nevertheless, there was clearly some demonic activity here. Verse 17 says that she followed Paul and the others around, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed you the way of salvation. And then Paul reaches the limits of his patience with her as she follows them around saying this. And after several days, he commanded the demon to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. A few things we need to think about. If she had a demon, why was she saying true stuff? If she was trying to deceive. Why was she saying true stuff? You know, she could have bad-mouthed them or spread all kinds of false things. Instead, she said who they were. They were servants of the Most High God who came to proclaim the gospel. But she just did it in a really annoying way. It's kind of a comical situation as we read it. But it's also revealing to us a few things about the host of fallen angels that we know very little about. First, they're real. I don't think it's common in our part of the world to see this kind of thing. Historically, it seems to have grown more, more and more rare from century to century. We see it in Jesus' days, and then we see it um, in the epistles, or a little bit in the book of Acts, and the epistles don't really talk about possessed people. You know, it seems to be something that fades a little bit, but 
nevertheless, can perhaps still take place. But in a progressively dark world like the one that we live in, it's not really hard for demons. I think they need to possess a lot of people in order to deceive the nations. The nations are clearly deceived by indulging in their own flesh and living for their father of lies. There are spiritual darkness, darknesses that wage war against the church and ravage the world. But I think the primary re reason for these things is because people love darkness rather than light, which is why Jesus was rejected. No one needs to be possessed who is indulging in the flesh, spreading as a double-tongued serpent lies and living in spiritual blindness toward God and his kingdom. This is maybe one reason we just don't see this a lot anymore. Secondly, I think this text reminds us that demons know that Jesus is Lord. Demons know that Jesus is Lord. They have better doctrine than most seminary professors. The mention of his name causes them to shudder. So why was this one running around saying that salvation had come? Because this is what false prophets do. They clothe themselves in righteous robes and try to identify themselves with the sheep. They say just enough truth in order to keep too many eyebrows from being raised, and then they bite and devour. The greatest annoyance Paul had with this girl was that she was probably confusing people that they were on the same team. They were not on the same team. Enough was enough. Thus came the time to put the spirits to the test. The spirit of the false god Python versus the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts. Paul commanded the demon to flee in the name of Jesus, and Jesus won. Now this is not a text about how we use the right magic words to remove demons and lift forces of darkness. This is a text that teaches us Jesus' authority over all evil. He had authority over all darkness when he walked this earth, and he still has authority over the dark domain today. And we will one day join a chorus of unending praise with Satan bound in a dungeon awaiting his final destruction. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood and your blood alone you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus was slain by death, and in doing, doing so, defeated death once and for all. He is worthy, and he is the conqueror. But it's good to know that Paul had a breaking point. What is our breaking point? Those who call evil good and good evil. We ought to all have a little impatience for that. Those who call evil good and good evil. If we get impatient about anything, may it be the assimilation of the church with the world. Or worse, the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Satan. They are not on the same team. Though we grow impatient, our job is not to vanquish evil once and for all. Jesus takes care of that. He technically already has. To be angry about the evil that pretends to be truth in the name of Jesus, but then leave the vengeance to God, knowing that he is greater than he who is in the world. Paul was upset, 
but the slave girl's owners were far more upset. That's the last point here, sovereign over persecution. Sovereign over persecution. Their crystal ball was gone. And this led to a brutal persecution. When her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, verse 19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Notice the logic, the soulless, numb logic of these slave owners. There's no mention of what happened to the girl, her personal sanity or deliverance from the forces of darkness. Maybe she was the second believer in Macedonia. text doesn't tell us, but it would be hard to imagine she didn't wake up after that, right? Uh, perhaps the Lord opened her heart to believe as well. We don't know. All that we see are these owners who are seeing dollar signs go down the drain. Their fortune-telling fortune is gone. Perhaps the darkest of all evil forces, evil devices, are those who seek to employ evil for personal gain. Those who seek to employ evil for personal gain. The owners weren't possessed, but they are the true maniacs of this story. They were blinded by greed and a love of money that had no base level ethics that would allow them to see people as people or that there was any morality ascribed to this situation. They were spiritually numb and their consciences were seared. And still today, one of the greatest motivators for those who make a living out of evil is financial gain. The abortion industry is not about health care. It's about money. Sex trafficking, sex trafficking is not about human pleasure. It's about money. Pornography is not about giving people what they want. It's about money. The LGBT movement, political agenda, is not about homosexual rights and validating same-sex attraction. It's all about money. These are some of those vilest forms of evil that we see in our day, and behind all of them are men in suits and ties whose career would be ended if the Lord would cast all the darkness out at once. They would have nothing left. And as we see all these evils in some kind of battle today, so it was with the slave girl's owners. They were not going down without a fight. They fought tooth and nail. They were the ones foaming at the mouth for greed. So they dragged Paul and Silas in the marketplace, lied about them before the magistrates. They were then attacked by a crowd, stripped them naked, and they were beaten with rods. This is what happens when a large empire of evil is threatened. They continued to inflict many blows on them. They threw them into prison and beaten to a pulp. Naked in a dark prison cell, there was a Philippian jailer appointed to their guard who put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. It seemed that maybe Macedonia was a mistake. But this is where God sent them. Right? That's the whole point of this. God sent us here. Is God making a mistake? Is darkness winning over light? What can God do from a prison cell? We'll see next week he can do a lot. We've already seen like two or three times in a prison cell he can do a lot. He's not only sovereign over evil, he's sovereign over the persecution 
that follows those who love light and love justice. And he uses that persecution for his glory in more ways than we could possibly fathom. In fact, I don't believe that there's any mistreatment or cruelty or discrimination or social humiliation that any of us have experienced without the knowledge, care, and wisdom of the Most High God. Our suffering is real. Our suffering is painful. Sometimes it creates deep wounds that do not heal. But God is still faithful, kind, compassionate, and good. I'll end really quickly. I was talking with a pastor recently who was wrestling with this, right? He had been meditating on sovereignty and human suffering. And he came to a room full of pastors, and he said, what do you guys tell people? What do you tell people? How do we tell abuse victims and survivors of the worst kinds of violence that God knew what he was doing and God meant good? How do you tell people that? That question is a hard question. And I'll go ahead and tell you that there is no real satisfying answer to it. There are answers, but none of them will satisfy our wounded, suffering souls in the way that we want. Just putting that out there. But the great tragedy of what took place that day with this room full of pastors is that they had nothing to say. Some of them said, I've never thought about that before. That is terrifying. I can't give you a satisfying answer, but I can tell you that God is good and wise and kind, and you need to think deep and heavily about how God can use your suffering for his glory. Because if you've never thought about it before, and then the hard things happen, you may indeed not recover. But if you know now without the shadow of a doubt that God is creator, you are creature, his ways are higher than your ways, he is the potter, you are the clay, and that he loves us. He loves us. And he has storehouses of compassion bursting forth for his children. then maybe you'll be a little more prepared when it hits. Because God does give you more than you can handle. And our only consolation when he gives you more than you can handle is that God himself strengthens us, is near to us, and shows his might when we are weak. Paul wrote to the Philippian church after leaving, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. This is chapter 4 of Philippians. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And here is this secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If only we could hear that verse without all the mess that our culture adds to it. To suffer for the glory of God under the wings of his might. And he still Here we come away with a God who is worth trusting. A God who strengthens us when we are tempted to despair. In and every circumstance, we have Christ.
And when the world sees our contentment in Jesus, rejoicing always in the Lord, this is the only apologetic we need to the problem of evil. This is the only apologetic we need to human suffering and God's sovereignty. Look at his people. Look at his people. He must be good. He must be good. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. His grace has brought us safe this far. His grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for teaching us your word. Pray that we would trust it and that we would trust you in all these domains, from salvation to evil forces and to persecution, that we would know you are good and wise and kind. Thank you for amazing grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.